Beatitudes as we know them. So can I invite you to open your Bibles to that passage. where it says now when he that is Jesus saw the crowds he went up on a mountainside and sat down his disciples came to him and he began to teach them saying blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way you persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father we thank you for your word. These are powerful words Lord that we've read this morning. And Lord, we pray that you'll speak to us with your spirit through your servant Carl this morning as he would unpack this passage. Father, we pray also for those who are at Sunday school and who are ministering to them. Father, may that also be a time of blessing as these youngsters come to know the love of the Lord Jesus. So bless every endeavour, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I feel like I've been away forever. I was only away one week. But uh, anyway, so welcome back me. Uh, It's nice to be here. Uh, And uh, I hope it's nice for you to be here as well uh, and to see me back. But uh, anyway... We're starting today, uh, no doubt you've realised, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And the Sermon on the Mount uh, is the name, if you're you're not aware, that uh, is often given to chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew. Uh, And those chapters are kind of a block of Jesus' teaching material and uh, where he went up on the mountain, as as, uh, Ben read just before, uh, and he went up there to teach people. Uh, Up until this time we've heard about John the Baptist, we've heard about uh, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, his being tempted in the desert, uh, and, uh, and healing and so on, but now he begins really for the first time to do some, some heavy systematic teaching. Uh, for those of you who might be worried, I should just say before I go on, I do know that Fred did a long series on the Beatitudes a few years ago and for those people who are kind of slightly panicking that we're going to do another long series uh, through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, it's okay, I know, uh, and, and we're going to go through these chapters uh, pretty quickly and hopefully... Uh, as we go through them uh, over the next couple of weeks, we'll, make, we'll see, I guess, the big picture uh, of how, these, uh, how this Sermon on the Mount 
uh, fits into Jesus' ministry and how it fits into uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Now, if I'd asked you a few moments ago before Ben read what characteristics best describe a follower of Jesus, I wonder what you would have said. I mean, the game's kind of been given away now, hasn't it, because we've read Matthew chapter 5, but if, if I had have asked you before you came to church this morning what characteristics best describe uh, the people who follow and trust Jesus, I wonder what you might have said. Uh, some people might have said that, uh, that Christians should go to church. Uh, some people might have said that Christians read the Bible and pray. Uh, others might have said, you know, Christians uh, shouldn't cheat on their taxes. You know, those things characterise Christians. And I think they're all true statements. You know, all those things should be true about Christians. Uh, and yet, they're not really the heart of the matter, are they? I think there's something deeper, something more substantial. I think if you had have asked me before uh, a week ago what my list would have been, I don't think it would have been this list that Jesus has given in Matthew chapter eight, uh, Matthew chapter five. But for Jesus, these eight characteristics are one of the best ways of describing what a true disciple looks like. Jesus has, uh, has just been preaching uh, the gospel to the people in chapter four. He's been uh, doing miracles, he's been healing people, preaching uh, the good news and loads of people have started to follow him and now he's sitting down and he's beginning to unpack what it means when he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And the place that he begins is with these eight characteristics. I think these uh, eight characteristics are useful. Let me, uh, for a couple of reasons, let me give two. Uh, the first uh, way that these characteristics are useful is, is that they give us something to pray for. Right? Uh, these eight virtues give us the proper shape of the Christian life and if we're serious about following Jesus, uh, we should be praying for and seeking these characteristics. So they give us something to pray for. But secondly, I think this, this list of eight virtues give us a great test to see whether or not we really are following Jesus. If we claim to be following Jesus but these eight uh, characteristics that are absent from our lives, then we've probably deceived ourselves and we've got some serious uh, repentance and serious confession to do. On the other hand, uh, if these things are in our lives, if they do characterise our lives, then there's great reasons to be encouraged. I think uh, with that said, before we scoot through uh, these eight characteristics, uh, it's important to realise that they are characteristics and not conditions. Uh, hopefully that will become clearer, I think, as we go through. But we have to read these Beatitudes in the light of what's already happened in Matthew. That is, in the light of the call of Jesus to repentance. In the light of the fact, as I've said before, that repentance is not, repentance is not about turning from bad standards to good standards, but, from turning, but about turning from sin to a powerful God. And all these characteristics have to be read in the light of that, about, uh, in the light of the Gospel, uh, where, where uh, righteousness comes through uh, believing in Jesus Christ. Well, let's go through these eight things uh, and see uh, how we go. The first beatitude is in, uh, in, is in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, says Jesus, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
This one really sets the agenda for everything else that follows. Right from the beginning it shows us that perfection uh, is not the key but humility. The quality which Jesus is talking about isn't a new thing, it's not uh, something he's just made up. Uh, But the Old Testament is full of references to uh, people who are poor in spirit. Here's an example from Isaiah 62 verse 2. This is the one I esteem, says God, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Exactly what's at stake is, is conveyed nicely by Psalm 70 verse 5 where the writer says, Yet I am poor and needy, come quickly to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. That is, the person who is poor in spirit is the person who is humble and who desperately depends on God and who calls on God for help. Right? It's the person who recognises their spiritual bankruptcy, the person who has nothing to offer God but instead looks to Jesus. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. In other words, spiritual poverty is linked closely with repentance, the repentance that Jesus and John were both calling for. And Jesus says, if that's you, if that describes you, if you are dependent on God, you cry out to God, then Jesus says, you are blessed. Which is another way of saying, really, that God looks on you with favour. God approves on you, not because you've earned something, but out of his grace and his mercy. See, these statements, these eight statements, are incredible statements because they're talking about what kind of people God approves of. What kind of people God recognises. And Jesus said, if poverty of spirit defines you, then you belong to the kingdom of heaven. That is, it's another way of saying that God's promises in Jesus are yours. If you are poor in spirit, then the promises of God in Jesus belong to you. From there Jesus goes on in verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We have to understand that mourning in the light of where Matthew has been so far. Remember how Matthew began with that genealogy where it moved from Abraham to David to the exile. It was about how hundreds, for hundreds of years the people of God had been humiliated because of their sin. They'd been in exile. They'd been judged by God. In Isaiah 40 when God announced the end to that, when God announced the end to the distress of his people, He said this, he said, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. People who have genuinely turned from sin to deliverance, from the troubling offence of sin, will inevitably be people who are grieved by the presence of sin. And not just uh, the presence of sin in themselves, but the presence uh, of sin in the world as well. They'll realise that that sin is what leads to the judgement of God, that, which is a thing which God hates. There are a few uh, better signs, I think, of a changed heart than weeping over the sins of other people. Grief uh, over our own sin can often be hard to evaluate, can't it? Because so often... Grief over our own sin is, can, can merely be grief over the consequences of our own sin. What, you know, what's happened to us because of our sin? Rather than grief over the ugliness of sin of, uh, itself. Uh, I knew a guy once who, uh, who felt the offence 
of sin so deeply that one night after a Bible study he went to his room and wept for hours and prayed because the people in that Bible study had been speaking lightly about God. That was, that was all they'd been doing, just speaking casually and lightly and jokingly about God. But he felt the offence of sin to God so deeply that he wept for hours and prayed, prayed that righteousness and love for God might be established. He had a sense, that guy, of the, of the uh, ignominy and uh, horror and offensiveness of sin to God and Jesus says that those people, people like that, will be comforted because the power of God will bring righteousness not only to them but to the world as well. From, meekness, uh, sorry, from, uh, from mourning, Jesus turns to meekness uh, when he says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meekness is one of those words, I think, which is really hard to define. Uh, you know, what's a, what's a kind of a great substitute for the word meek? Well, if you've got your, uh, your Bible, turn back to Psalm 37, because Psalm 37 gives a pretty good description uh, of what it means to be meek. So Psalm 37 and then verse 5 where it says Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil. For evil men will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. So some synonyms, if you like, for meekness can be found in those verses in, in Psalm 37. What are, some synonyms, what are some other words for meekness? Well, there's phrases like commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, be still before the Lord, wait patiently for him, those who hope in the Lord. Right there, substitutes, if you like, for the word or the characteristic of meekness. In other words, to be meek means to trust God. That's what it means. It means not to try and right wrongs for yourself but to trust in God. There are those who are poor in spirit, are there not? Those who mourn over sin, but those who never take the step from there to trusting in God as their saviour. And then, of course, there are those who see their spiritual poverty, they mourn over themselves and over the sin of the world, and as a consequence of that, they're driven to Jesus Christ, their saviour, and they put all their hope in him, in God's majestic Son. People who trust Jesus to rescue them, who trust Jesus to right the world and who trust God to forgive them in the death of Jesus, those people are the meek and Jesus says, if that's you, then you're blessed. And when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead, you will inherit the earth. If you're meek, if you trust in God, then you're blessed. 
Next, Jesus uh, moves on uh, and he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. In Matthew, uh, righteousness pretty well always refers to what is right. Uh, It includes both the desire for personal righteousness and holiness, but also the desire for righteousness to be displayed in the whole world. In other words, uh, what Jesus is talking about is for people who desire more than anything else for Jesus to be honoured and served in all the world. Sometimes uh, you come across people, I think, who say that they're passionate about God and yet they seem to lack a passion for holiness. But Jesus is saying that there is no such thing as a real Christian who follows him but doesn't hunger and thirst for holiness. The two go together. Jesus says that blessed people, the people who are looked on favourably and esteemed by God, those people hunger for righteousness as you might hunger for food. It is their, it is their life. It is their joy. To follow Jesus is their great hope. It is real life. There are a few people, uh, I think few movements in the world which have embodied that reality as greatly as the Puritans. I don't know how many people know the Puritans. I love the Puritans. It was a Christian movement in the 17th and the 18th century and they were people who were passionate about holiness. That's why they got the name Puritan. It was a derogatory term that people used, uh, people outside the church used to refer to them because they cared so much about holiness. They cared so much about it that people persecuted them on account of it. Their passion for holiness burned like a fire within them. They lived in this world as kind of a preparation for the next world. And that's not to say that their passion for holiness meant that they were joyless or austere or kind of boring people. They were full of joy. And they burned with a hunger and thirst for righteousness and godliness. And Jesus says, if that's you, if that's a description of you, then you will be satisfied. That's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting because it reminds us that holiness is not, a, is not something that we uh, produce ourselves alone, but that it's a gift from God. But it's not a gift that we sit and wait for. You know, some people have said things like live and let God, you know, sort of just leave it to God and he'll change your life. Sit back and wait. No, but Jesus says righteousness is a gift that comes to who? To those who hunger and thirst for it. To those who pursue God on account of it. For people like Jacob who wrestled with God and said, I'm not going to let you go, God, until you give me this blessing. Jesus says... If that describes you, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, then you're blessed, esteemed and recognised by God and you will be satisfied. Jesus moves on to mercy. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. The mercy he's talking about is not mercy from the world but mercy from God. Like all the other Beatitudes, it's a gift. But the point here is not that Uh, our showing mercy is the condition for God showing mercy. 
Rather, the point is that those who have received mercy from God and who will ultimately receive mercy at the coming of the Lord Jesus, those people will inevitably be people who show mercy themselves. People who are following and trusting Jesus will be merciful people. Having received mercy, having received unwarranted kindness, having received compassion from God in their poverty and their helplessness, having received uh, the overlooking of their faults from the perfect and holy God, those people will show that same mercy to other people. They'll show unmerited kindness. They'll show compassion to the poor and the needy. They'll overlook the faults of others. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that it's not possible to be hard-hearted, bitter and unforgiving towards other people and at the same time to think that without repentance you'll receive the mercy of God. There are few things, I think, which are as truly disturbing uh, as an unforgiving spirit, as a person uh, who harbours grudges. Right? There's nothing more troubling than people who've been in the church for 20 or 30 years or have along uh, and who still harbour grudges from years ago. Jesus says those people will not inherit the kingdom of heaven unless they repent. In contrast, those who are kind and merciful uh, as God is kind and merciful, those people, says Jesus, are blessed They're esteemed and regarded by God. They will receive greater mercy from God at the coming of Jesus Christ. The sixth uh, blessing statement which Jesus gives is in verse 8 where he says, Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Now we've done a lot about clean heart. Uh, Literally it says clean heart, not a pure heart. We've done a lot about cleanness when we went through Leviticus Uh, and we saw that A clean heart is a heart with right motives and right thoughts and with right love for God. It's a heart free from the pollution of wrong desires, a heart free from wrong thoughts and wrong loves. And this characteristic has to be seen against that Old Testament background where genuine purity of heart was possible, though not yet, uh, it wasn't yet a perfect uh, purity of heart. There was the possibility of genuine devotion to God, uh, of genuinely right motives, of genuine love for God, yet the sacrificial system always pointed to the fact that despite the possibility of genuineness, there remained the need for forgiveness because although it was genuine, it was imperfect. Perhaps, uh, Perhaps that describes you. Perhaps you find that while you're imperfect and you trust in Jesus for forgiveness, nevertheless, as you look at your heart genuinely and honestly, you find that there are right motives. You find that you do desire Jesus. You find that you do love God and that you do want to serve him and that you do actually serve him. You enjoy thinking about what's good and noble and pleasing to God. You enjoy thinking about that more than thinking about what's cheap and torrid and sordid. Jesus says, if that describes you, then you're blessed. He says, you're favoured, you're esteemed by God, you're recognised by God, you will see God 
when Jesus comes again to judge the living and the dead. You will see God and you will see him for all eternity. The second last uh, of these characteristics is blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. God is, uh, I think it's fair to say, the ultimate peacemaker Uh, and those who follow him are inevitably peacemaking people as well. That works on on a number of levels. Uh, They make peace through disarming arguments. People who follow Jesus make peace through disarming arguments. They make peace through reconciling enemies. They make peace through reconciling with their own enemies. Some people uh, take every opportunity to turn something into a fight. But Jesus says, not the people who truly follow him. The people who truly follow him, like their Father in heaven, will be peacemaking people. Not just peaceful people, but people who make peace. People who follow Jesus also make peace by telling others about the good news about Jesus. They make peace between others and God by telling them about the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the life of Jesus, which brings hope to a broken world. Jesus says, if that describes you, if you're a peacemaking person, then you're blessed and you're favoured by God and you'll be called a son of God. You'll be one of God's family. Finally, the, uh, the last characteristic which Jesus gives of, of uh, a true disciple uh, is in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. This last characteristic is interesting for two reasons. The first reason that it's interesting is that it's particularly useful in rescuing us from thinking that all these statements of blessing are preconditions or things which earn us a place in the kingdom of heaven. Because this last one really flows out of the fourth one, doesn't it? People who hunger and thirst for righteousness are increasingly made holy through the gift of God. And those people who are increasingly transformed in the image of Christ those people who are increasingly holy, those people are also increasingly persecuted. These blessings aren't something that we earn, but they're the result of the gift and the mercy and the kindness of God through the grace of God. So first of all, this last one reminds us and I think shows us quite, quite firmly that these things are not conditions but characteristics of people who are following Jesus. And second, and most importantly of all, I think, uh, this last beatitude uh, rescues us from thinking that these are just personal characteristics. This last one rescues us from thinking that these are just uh, characteristics which are not bound up with the person of Jesus Christ. You see, fundamental to this blessing is persecution, but it's not just any persecution, it's persecution on account of Jesus. That means that without Jesus you've got nothing. You might have poverty of spirit, you might have weeping over sin, but without a named and a public allegiance to Jesus, those other characteristics are completely worthless. 
All these things have to be taken together. In 2 Timothy, Paul uh, challengingly, I think, tells Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now that persecution can take all different forms. Jesus says it's not just being killed or thrown in prison, but it includes being insulted, it includes false accusations, it includes all kinds of evil things being said against you. But the point is, real discipleship invites real persecution. It's worth taking a moment, I think, to sit down and to think about whether or not you are persecuted. And if you are, and if you aren't, think about why that is. Is it because there is none of these seven other characteristics which Jesus has been talking about? You're not going to be persecuted for following Jesus if you're not following Jesus and showing the signs of following Jesus. Or is it because perhaps while you strive for personal sort of godliness and piety, Jesus is nowhere to be seen? That is why you strive to be good. There's no personal and public allegiance to Jesus. The two have to go together. There has to be these seven characteristics, these eight characteristics bound up with this personal allegiance, this personal and public allegiance to Jesus Christ. Everyone, says Jesus, who follows and trusts him will be persecuted. And if that describes you, if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, if you're persecuted for following Jesus, then here is the miracle, you are blessed. You are favoured by God, esteemed by God and you belong to the kingdom of heaven. In many ways, these eight characteristics, these eight beatitudes shame us, don't they? I think if we're serious about it, we find ourselves wanting. Uh, They can leave us with tremendous doubts about where we stand with God But I think how we respond to hearing these Beatitudes reflects how much they are a picture uh, of us or not. You see, if you hear these Beatitudes and feel condemned and inadequate and that grieves you and if you want to grow in these things and you put your hope and trust in Jesus, that is, if you hear these Beatitudes and your response to them is to be poor in spirit and to mourn and to be meek and to hunger and thirst for righteousness and to be more merciful to other poor sinners and uh, to hunger, um, uh, then Jesus says, if that describes you, then you're blessed, you're favoured by God. In other words, if in coming to these Beatitudes we feel inadequate but our response to them is to, is to exhibit these same characteristics which we feel we don't have, then we can be assured, despite that paradox, we can be assured that we belong to Jesus. On the other hand, if having heard these Beatitudes, your response is to feel self-confident and proud of where you're at, if your response is to be content with your holiness, then Jesus says you're not blessed. If your response is to be judgmental, Uh, of other hopeless sinners around you, then Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven doesn't belong to you, that you won't be comforted, you won't inherit the earth, you won't be satisfied with righteousness, not that you want it anyway, 
you won't see God. And if that's you, then the only thing is to go back to the beginning, to poverty of spirit, to humility, to weeping over sin and to trusting in Jesus. In other words, the only response to a proud heart is to follow Jesus' gospel message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus has given us a portrait of what a true disciple looks like. And Lord, not a portrait so that we can be discouraged and downhearted, but a portrait so that we can see that if this describes us, then, that we, then we are truly blessed. Because having received Jesus and having repented, you've changed us and you've made us one of your children. And you look on us with favour, you recognise us, you welcome us. Lord, help us to see whether these things are in our lives and if they are, Lord, we pray that you would help us to believe what Jesus says here, that we are truly blessed and in a privileged position. Lord, we also pray for those who perhaps, uh, whose lives are not characterised by these things, Lord, the proud, uh, the judgmental, the bitter, the unforgiving. Lord, we pray for those that they might admit what they're like and turn to Jesus Christ and have life. Lord, we ask it for the sake of his name. Amen.